Welcome to EDI on BIV. I'm Haley Wooden, Executive Editor at Business in Vancouver. Our guests and co-hosts join us from across the province on this show, but the show itself is broadcast from the unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh nations. I'm joined today by co-host Chantal Krish. Returning to the show, she's the Director of Communications Programs and Outreach with the Office of the Lieutenant Governor of BC. Welcome back, Chantal. Hi, great to be here again. And we are joined today by BC's first independent human rights commissioner. Kasari Govender has devoted her life to promoting human rights with a special focus on the rights of those who are most marginalized and vulnerable in society. She has a law degree from UVic and a master's in international human rights law from Oxford. And she assumed the role of commissioner in September 2019. We're pleased to have her on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for the invitation to be here. So as commissioner, I understand you lead the promotion and protection of human rights in BC. Can you give us some examples of the ways in which you're actually able to do that and any specific areas you're particularly focused on? Yes, um, we have a number of of kind of tools in our our tool belt um, that is... um, you know, we've got a huge, big, broad mandate to promote and protect human rights, as you've said. And then uh, there's some ways to whittle that down to make that more practical. What do we actually do? Um, and so we have some, as I said, some tools. That includes education. There's a big focus on education in our work. Uh, it includes doing research and, and building our, our body of knowledge and thinking about human rights in the province. Um, it includes doing policy and law reform work, so advocacy for changes to how our government makes decisions. Um, but our mandate is much broader than government. Our mandate is really everybody in the province. Um, everybody is a stakeholder in human rights, uh, both as rights holders and also as duty bearers, as people who have responsibilities uh, under the human rights code and human rights law more generally. Um, Another uh, couple of tools in our tool belt are more legal in nature. So uh, intervening in cases, meaning getting involved as a third party in ongoing litigation to talk about some of the systemic implications of a case, as well as uh, doing inquiries and investigations into maybe narrow areas of human rights or big, broad areas of human rights. We've got a, I've got a fair amount of discretion uh, to decide uh, what those are. There are a number of strategic priorities um, that that we've defined for my term in office. Um, And um, that includes uh, poverty as both a cause and effect of inequality and injustice in the province. It includes the rights of those who are detained by the state, whether that's uh, in the criminal justice system or in the mental health system. Um, It includes the rise of hate and white supremacy which was uh, an issue before the pandemic and, uh, you know, has been in the news and brought to our attention in much more dramatic ways during this pandemic. Um, And uh, it also includes uh, decolonization as a key priority for my office, and as well as dealing with discrimination as defined by the Human Rights Code, uh, which is really in the context of employment, in context of services that are usually available to the public, and uh, in the context of, of tenancy or housing. And that really uh, really touches on the kinds of duty bearers um, in the business community. So what are, your, what are the responsibilities of, of, business, of businesses as employers, as service providers, and potentially as housing providers? 
That's great. Wow, that's a big mandate. <laughs> We're lucky to have you in the role. I, you know, from your former work as well with West Coast Leaf, advancing equality for women, and now moving into this position, it seems like not only a great fit, but something that the province is is really fortunate to have someone with that background. I wanted to just talk a little bit about sort of your previous work as it informs what you're doing now in the context of what we're here to talk about, which is, you know, inclusion, diversity, and equity in the business space, but also more broadly in the workforce. What are you recommending or seeing um, in terms of gaps um, for the people that you serve, you know, what's coming out of your research around inclusion, um, whether it's relating to poverty or the other intersecting issues around gender and race, um, and, and like, what kind of recommendations do you present through your engagements with the public that help to enhance greater inclusion in our province? Um, you know, I think there's a, there's a couple different ways uh, to look at that question. And I think um, from my perspective, talking about equity, inclusion, diversity issues is very important. And it's also important to do that in, in not too narrow a way, not to look at those issues um, in a in a more um, surface way of, of can we, you know, it is important, I think, that that uh, em- employers and, uh, again, service providers, governments, big businesses, think about reflecting the people they serve in the people who work at those offices. Um, but it is, but it's also broader than that. I think really doing equity, diversity, and inclusion work well entails understanding how racism and how sexism might play out in your workforce, um, ableism as well, and understanding that these issues have systemic roots, that simply hiring people is an important step, uh, but not it won't actually make your workforce anti-racist, for example. Mm-hmm. That, takes, that takes further steps as well. So that's the way I'd like to, to think of your question as, as having yeah. some really concrete deliverables, but also having deeper roots below that, that takes some deeper thinking. What are some of those concrete steps, if you could just give us a few examples? Yeah, um, so we're, we're uh, start, starting to delve much more deeply into the areas of employment. So maybe I'll, I'll focus on that mm. for a moment. Um, uh, in the next year or so, we'll be producing some uh, some more comprehensive guidance around what um, what employment equity steps uh, employers might be able to take. All different kinds of employers around the full the full range of, of steps around employment. So hiring, recruitment, and hiring retention. Um, progress through uh, through the levels of your organization and how to ensure that people in these roles reflect the, the, the again, those you serve or those in our, our communities. Um, and to, to think about that uh, a little bit more comprehensively maybe than we have more traditionally. So for example, um, having territorial acknowledgements in the front of your space, um, I, I don't wanna get into territorial acknowledgements as purely uh, virtue signaling or purely kind of, uh, we're trying to do the right thing, but really we're not changing anything. But I think, you know, what I've heard from indigenous people who, who I've hired or I've, I've worked with is we wanna know that we're welcome in this space, mm. that we're seen as, as indigenous people and, and seen for our strengths and what we bring uh, to this work. So there's some ways to signal that through how you develop your office space. Also, how accessible is your office space? If you uh, try to you know, go out and hire people with disabilities, but you don't think about 
What font size are we using? You know, down to those kinds of details. What uh, IT tools are we using and how accessible are those to people who have uh, sight impairments or, or other sensory impairments? There's a lot of uh, devil in the yeah. details here. Um, and we're trying to build that in. We have both the privilege and burden of building an organization from scratch. And that allows us to be learning from our own uh, successes and mistakes along the way, honestly. And so that's why we're putting this work in the next year or so we're doing right now and a bunch of internal work going back through all of our hiring to analyze, uh, did we did we attract people to our organization to apply who come from these diverse groups? When did we lose them along the way if we lost them? What's the attrition rate? Are we hiring people? And then, you know, what's happening after hiring? And then we're going to bring that knowledge of what we're doing in our organization to this larger piece of research to put out in the world. I'll just say one last thing about the employment side. Um, there is a, a provision in the Human Rights Code, which is the, the enabling legislation for my office. And it is called the Special Programs um, uh, Provisions. And what it does is encourages employers in particular, but actually all duty bearers, to put into place programs where they treat people differently according to different, different needs and identities in order to fulfill the equality and non-discrimination provisions in the code. So I'm gonna give you an example of that. So we have many school boards, for example, applying to us to say, we wanna have somebody as an indigenous uh, educator or programs provider, or in some other kind of position that's going to provide mentorship for Indigenous students. It's, they're going to provide you know, advice maybe on curriculum development, uh, on program development, because we see the rates at which Indigenous kids are not uh, graduating at the same rates um, as, uh, as non-Indigenous children. So this is one strategy to deal with that. But we don't want to be um, then sued under the Human Rights Code for having an Indigenous-only hire because we've excluded non-Indigenous people from that position. So under this provision in the code, I can, uh, can grant an application and say, you, you are allowed to do this and, and no one can sue you under the code. No one can, can bring a legal claim against you under the code while this program is in place. And there's you know, indicators of success that you need to show us to show that this is actually working, that you're actually building equity in your workforce, for example. So that's another way that, uh, businesses can engage in this work. What a really potentially powerful tool you have at your disposal there. And I look forward to reading the research that's going to come out from your office on the employment side. Since assuming the role, uh, you know, over the past year and a half, we've heard a lot from companies talking about commitments, talking about their aims around creating broader equity, diversity, and inclusion within their workforces. Are you encouraged that there are meaningful steps being taken? Or do you think that we're not seeing enough on this front from the business community? Um, maybe both, maybe a bit of both. I think uh, it is encouraging. Um, and I think we are um, in this watershed moment in a much longer movement around anti-racism in particular. And, you know, the last year or so has been a time when even more people have had this conversation um, and had these issues in the forefront in their minds and grappled with the kind of, of tragedies that can emerge from racism. Um, and also thinking about the ways in which that shows up in so many aspects of our own lives um, and the way we think, honestly, we all have to own up uh, to our stereotypes and biases that we have. This isn't necessarily something out there that's so extreme. It's also on a full scale. Um, and so, 
you know, I think that I'm, I'm encouraged by the fact that this is so present for so many of us um, and being brought into institutions and businesses in a way that it never has before. The, the concerns I have are to make sure that that doesn't become um, commitments in words only or commitments in band-aid solutions only, that it goes deeper than that. And that's why I started out talking about, you know, equity, div diversity and inclusion. These are really positive goals, but they can't stop just be at the superficial level. They have to go deeper. They require deep thought and they require uh, educating ourselves in a way um, that is ongoing, that is thoughtful, and that uh, seeks to put our own shame or guilt um, it, it aside so that we can actually self-interrogate again as individuals, but also as institutions and businesses. Yeah, I think this work is just so deeply rooted in exposing our own vulnerabilities and sometimes ignorance and from that can birth a stronger, more authentic movement of inclusion and change. However, that's very scary work for many people. And I think, you know, for yourself, who's really dedicated your career to this kind of work, it's probably a space that you might feel not necessarily comfortable, but you're brave to go into that space and, and to be open and, and surround yourself with folks that, that also have that view. I think in the business community that can be challenging and you know it's it's a bit of an elephant in the room and so sometimes we do see sort of stopgap measures to create greater diversity but that's sort of where it ends. So my question to that extent is what advice do you have for folks that are scared that are that are um you know unsure how to navigate through these waters um, that aren't used to doing that in a sort of corporate environment what kind of advice do you have in terms of the positive outcomes it can have and just navigating through that space? Um, that's a great <laughs> question. Um, and I, it's, it's a little bit hard. I, I'm, finding, I'm struggling a little bit to provide that advice in the abstract. Um, but, <coughs> excuse me, I think one piece is to think about what world you want to live in. And um, however much it's been said, what world do you want our children uh, to live in? And if we truly want our children to grow up in a space in which they are they are all equal um, and to really understand the implications not just uh, for people who experience discrimination not just for uh, black indigenous and people of color not just for women and trans people uh, not just for uh, people with disabilities and so on but that to understand how inequality impacts all of us um, that all of us uh, suffer from these stereotypes in one way or another. Um, and to think about what world do you want to live in? And I think that that allows us, I think, to have more brave conversations as opposed to starting from a deficit position of what's wrong with me. Uh, what system have I participated in? Those are important questions. Uh, well, at least what, system, what systems have I participated in is an important question. But I think the starting point needs to be a place of, of hopefulness. I think that's a much more motivating factor than a place of shame. So let's hope for that kind of world and move from that place. Um, there are also, you know, again, on a more kind of pragmatic level, there are business benefits to doing this work. Um, this is a conversation that more and more and more people care about and want to see reflected in their institutions and in their businesses. Um, and uh, I think as, as, you know, 
all of, of us as duty bearers uh, need to be thinking about that as well. What do the people we serve want to see in, in our um, institutional actions and, and how do we reflect the concerns that are very present for so many people in the world today in the business we do? I want to ask you about a relatively recent announcement. I understand you're going to be intervening in your first legal case since your appointment. Can you give us some insight into first what you look for in a case? What are you considering? And then what intervening might potentially mean in terms of impact? There's a number of, of factors, and um, I'm really excited to, uh, to be uh, engaging in this first intervention. Uh, maybe I'll back up for a second, just say that and what an intervention is, is where there's an ongoing case, and in this case, a human rights case, so there's a complainant and a respondent, an intervener will come in not on one side or the other, won't come in to represent the complainant or represent the respondent, but will come in to say, we think we have something to offer the decision maker that will help the decision maker understand the broader implications of a case. So how might a case change the law or change a system going forward? Uh, so that is a key criteria for how we intervene in a case. Many cases do concern the interests of just the people in front of them, uh, in front of the decision maker. Uh, but some have these bigger public uh, policy kind of implications. So that's a key criteria. Is this case, does this case have the uh, potential to change the law or change a broader system for good or for bad? Uh, and, and do we have a role in that? Does that fit squarely within um, my, my mandate or the mandate of the Office of the Human Rights Commissioner? In this case, this is our first case to intervene in, and it's a case concerning family status discrimination. So discrimination um, is, that kind of discrimination is prohibited under the Human Rights Code. It's the kind of discrimination where uh, somebody might be treated differently because of, of, or have a differential impact, like a policy or a practice might impact them differently because they have children, for example, or they have a particular family commitment. In this case, it was uh, a person, a woman who had childcare responsibilities and she was, uh, she and her partner, the father of her children both worked for um, the same company and had the same shift. And they were looking to shift that a bit so that they could deal with childcare um, more effectively. The employer refused their requests and uh, that ultimately uh, resulted in this case. And um, what's at stake here is the legal test to determine what constitutes discrimination in this context. Family status discrimination is unique because it requires a higher threshold than all other forms of discrimination. So if I as an employee feel I'm discriminated against because of my race or my gender or my ability, I have to meet this standard. But if I feel I've been discriminated against because I have uh, been uh, because of my family status, I have to meet a higher standard. And that's what this case is getting at. What is that higher standard exactly? And so we're intervening to try to ensure that uh, people have access to justice when they are discriminated against because of, of their family responsibilities or their family status. That's really interesting and, and comes at a time where we're having provincial and national conversations about how women have been disproportionately impacted by the pandemic, record investments in childcare too. So it, I look forward to, to seeing that because it feels like it's um, coming at a time where we're really rethinking traditional gender roles and the, the structure of a family and how that may need to change. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, you know, one of the things that I think is 
I mean, maybe a silver lining of this pandemic is it's it's really this great equalizer around how we're all managing our home and our work life. And, you know, the, being able to reconcile those conflicts, the lines have become just so much more blurred. But in, for many people, particularly women and mothers, they've experienced those challenges for a long time. So it is certainly uh, great to hear the work you're doing because it sounds like a really specific issue that could positively impact a huge number of people. So certainly can't wait to see how that evolves. Um, I guess another question that I had, um, and this, you know, this uh, kind of relates also to your previous work in the charitable sector. You know, I also have experience in that area is around how we support organizations that are really carrying out a lot of work to support um, to enhance inclusion, to support marginalized populations, and to tackle some of the on-the-ground issues that your office is, is covering in your mandate. You know, when we look at how corporations fundraise, for example, for charities and, and designate um, funding that way, I, I noticed, you know, I heard you speak at the recent Inclusion Project uh, Partnership Roundtable, and you you spoke a little bit to that. And I'm thinking, I was just wondering if you could sort of elaborate on sort of the idea behind charitable giving and inclusion and sort of what kind of lessons the business sector might be able to take to, to create greater opportunities to support these organizations. Um, thanks for that question. Yeah, it's, it's a really interesting one. And um, Chantelle, you and I met in, in that context of our, our previous work um, in the charitable sector. Uh, and it's something I know that both of us have given a lot of thought to, to how, um, how that kind of funding happens and whether it enables change in the way that it needs to. Um, so I'll, I'll try to I'll try to answer it uh, not with every thought I've had about that issue, but in a more narrow way. Um, I think that one of the one of the issues that's present for me in 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 this conversation is about um, we use this word charity to to talk about a legal charity, but we uh, you know what constitutes a legal charity, but we also mean it. In, in a bit of a different way. When we talk about charitable giving, it's uh, it's seen as a gift. Um, and there's there's a beautiful part of that, but it can also be a bit patronizing and a bit uh, creating a model in which, um, you, you know, uh, sort of people are considered lesser and need some kind of gift in order to survive. And I think we need to shift away from a model, a sort of a charitable model of thinking, not switch and move away from charities as a legal entity, but move away from an idea of, of the kind of the funding of our social services and our social change through a model of charity and move more towards a model of justice. So we, we can donate and we can be philanthropists and we can raise money for these issues because we believe these issues make for a just society, as opposed to, uh, you know, just sort of out of the big greatness of our heart, uh, give to those who are disadvantaged. That's a little bit of a different framing. And I think it's significant. Um, what game, let's move that more to the practical, what that can mean is ensuring that organizations, both organizations on the ground, like food banks, 
uh, have the money they need to survive because these are, are important um, supports for many people, but also giving or giving money to organizations that are trying to shift the systems themselves so that people don't have that kind of income inequality, so that they have the basic needs uh, to live. And so that means giving to organizations um, that are trying to do that broader systems work as well. And that will shift, I think, our model away from this, again, kind of unequal type of charitable thinking more towards a justice model of, of philanthropy. A final question for you, Commissioner. I want to ask about what you may be focusing on over the year ahead and also pair that with a bit of a question around data and whether you think there are areas around the work you do where we need more information to make decisions and provide recommendations and if there are potentially opportunities where businesses or institutions could do some work so that we better understand and, and are able to make better, more inclusive, more informed decisions moving forward. Absolutely. So, so a, a significant piece of our work over the last year has been on this data question. Um, last June, I was asked by the Premier uh, to provide some advice about how to collect race-based and other disaggregated data well, how to collect it to support uh, the creation of law and policy and practice that will start to work against uh, these systemic forces, try to unpack systemic racism and sexism and so on, but how to do that in a way that doesn't reinforce stigma. So race-based and other disaggregated data can create more stigma or create laws and policies that actually entrench these kinds of, the, the very kind of systems that we're working against. Um, so uh, we wrote a report called The Grandmother Perspective and, and um, released that to the legislature and to the public last September. And I have to say, I've been overwhelmed by the interest from every sector, from, from government, for sure. We were very pleased to see the, the, a commitment in the mandate letters of both the Attorney General and the Parliamentary Secretary for anti-racism initiatives. Um, there was commitments in their mandate letters to work with my office to try to implement some of these recommendations. There has been interest from large institutions like universities. Um, there have been interest from the business community, from the nonprofit community. Just every, so many sectors have reached out to us to say, we want to think about how to do this data collection well. And uh, I won't go into all the recommendations, but the key piece of that is to do that in consultation with community. And not just in consultation, uh, but in deep consultation, meaning they need to have, community needs to have some ownership and control over what happens to their data. So, um, you know, there's this continual question, how do we do this without causing harm? Well, ask the very people whose data you are collecting how they want to see that data collected. And that's the key to what the grandmother perspective is. We were gifted a, a very uh, important perspective, which was uh, from, a, from a woman named Gwen Phillips, who's a First Nations uh, data governance um, expert. And she talked about how uh, this data needs to be collected because institutions care. Um, because in, in much the way that a grandmother cares about her family. Um, so use that model when you're collecting data. How do you collect this data in a way to actually provide uh, services and provide support? One of the key initiatives uh, going forward is uh, certainly to keep implementing and working with government on how to bring these recommendations forward. 
um, but also some employment equity work uh, that we talked about. We will also be running a, a new public awareness campaign. Some folks may have seen our public awareness campaign on um, anti-racism. In the fall, we will be running uh, another campaign on a different area of equality uh, this fall. We have many, many plans uh, in, our, in our pocket, uh, and I look forward uh, to rolling them out over the next year. Yeah, a lot to look forward to. Uh, Commissioner Governor, thank you so much for spending your time with us this morning and joining us with your insight and, and talking about some of the important work underway with your office. Thank you so much again. Thank for you. It was great to be here. Thank you so much. That's Kasari Governor, BC's first independent human rights commissioner. Joining me today is co-host Chantal Krish, Director of Communications Programs and Outreach with the Office of the Lieutenant Governor of BC. I'm Haley Wooden, Executive Editor at BIV, and this has been EDI on BIV. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back with a new episode of our show on Tuesday. <laughs>